Well, welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church. If you're online or cafe or in the venue, a special welcome to you. What a wonderful day. And if you're watching at home, we miss you and understand that many aren't able to come. And we're grateful for the technology that allows you to watch from home. But boy, you're missing a great morning here. We're glad that you are here. And if you're visiting us for the first time here at Big Valley, a special welcome to you. My wife and I will be over here in the corner. We'd love to greet you and extend a special welcome to you. Pastor Rick is over in prime, prime time. I want to say prime shine, but he's next door in the fireside room and uh, posing him down with the gospel, right? But uh, he'll be back here next week. And we're starting a new series about what it means to be the church. And living life together is better. It's what the Lord intended is that we would be connected in a wonderful love relationship with one another because of Christ and what he has done. And we'll be exploring that here in just a moment. We had a great week Wednesday night. We had a dwelling place, and rather than meet here, we met over in the community center over in Ceres, and we had a phenomenal time. I don't know how many were there, but it was a good showing. And uh, uniquely, that place used to be a church. And uh, Ceres bought the church, tore it down, and built a beautiful building facility, and we're turning it back into a church. <laughs> and it's just neat to see how God is reigning and the privilege that we have to extend the gospel message to the community of Ceres and to be a part of God's work over there. There's many churches that are over there and we're able to be a part of it. But in, in spite of the fact that there are many churches there, it is a largely unreached community. The, the per capita in terms of how many churches are per person is relatively small. Uh, and we want to change that. And the Lord is calling us there, and we're glad to be a part of it. And if you uh, are in that area, please come and join, join Joel here right after the service. Uh, and if you're not, man, be in prayer for us and support us. And, and let's watch what God will do in, in our lives uh, together. Many of you um, know this past, uh, well, uh, on July 17th, my dad graduated at 94 years old. And he is enjoying the choruses of heaven and church there, and boy, it's good to know the Lord and to have our hope secure in Him. And it was just a blessing to be with my dad when he passed out of this life into the next. And um, it was a surprising day for us. You know, it's just, it just a reminder. We had a great time in the morning. We had lunch together, and things changed later that, that afternoon. Many of you have uh, embraced us and have sat in the dirt with us. When you read Job, you'll understand what that means. And uh, people have just surrounded us. We appreciate your cards. Yes, uh, the other day I spent most of the morning just going through many of the cards. Appreciate your concern and your support. Uh, ben Jennings passed away Friday night. He graduated too. Many of you know Ben Jennings. Been in this community many, many years. In fact, my mom and dad were at his wedding before they were married and they experienced his ministry when they were in high school. Uh, ben Jennings is the father of Colleen Fraioli. John Fraioli is our business administrator. So many of you know them and maybe weren't aware of it, but jot them a note and let them know that you love them and you care, you care for them. Well, in 1960, uh, Green Bay Packers lost a game on December 26 that was unforgettable to Vince Lombardi. It was a game they should have won, and they lost it in the last few minutes of the game, and Vince determined, I'm not going to ever do that again. And so on spring training in 1961, 
38 men gathered on the field and Vince Lombardi held up a football and he said, this is a football. <laughs> We're going to start with the basics. And every practice after that, and every spring training after that, for the seven years that he coached, he always started with the basics. We're going to start from the beginning. This is a football. This is how we play the game. This is how we score the points. This is what the goalposts mean. This is what the lines in the field mean. One of the players said, coach, you're going a little bit too fast for us. <laughs> These were men that for 38 had played football all their life as children. They knew the game, but he wanted to take him back down to the basics. And he became an outstanding coach, a legacy. But I've never forgot that illustration that there are times that we need to go back to the basics. And even when I was pastoring a church, we, every year we would go back, let's understand what the basics is. What does it really mean to be the church? The church is more than preaching. It's more than just this gathering point. This is not insignificant. It's not unimportant. And we're going to see from Scripture how significant this gathering is but this is not all that church is meant to be. In fact, he has given us some great handles and descriptions as to what he intended when he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we just sang a great song. And I want you to think about, if, for some of you, it wouldn't be that far to think. For others, maybe it's a while back. But do you remember where you were before you met Jesus? You remember what your life was like before you met Christ, before somebody shared the gospel with you and you sensed the Lord knocking on the door of your heart and you surrendering yourself to him? Do you remember that point? First Peter says that he called us out of darkness. And whether you were a young child raised in a Christian home as I was, we were still called out of darkness into his light. And I remember vividly that day that I gave my life to the Lord, that I sensed the Lord knocking on the door of my heart. I was in a church service similar to this. And I knew that I was not saved. I knew I needed Jesus. And I remember vividly praying with the pastor and feeling the weight of my sins being lifted from me and the spirit coming in me and dwelling in me. And I knew at then I was secure in Christ. And while I was, you know, we tend to think, well, I wasn't in that darkness. It was dark. But I know where I would be if I didn't have Christ. And he has wonderfully rescued me. And I saw that in my father in a wonderful way. He left a great legacy. He left a great inheritance and things that really matter. My dad was rich because of Christ. And we have been blessed to receive the legacy and his richness of, of watching a father live for the Lord and have blessed our home and has blessed our family. And he's passed that on to his children and to his children's children. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. But do you remember where you were before Jesus? When you think about that question, it was him who sought you. You did not seek him. You might have thought you were looking for him, but he was looking for you first. He was the one that was knocking on the door of your heart. He was the one that was bringing people into your lives. He was the one that was making you attentive to the radio show that you were listening to or bringing here to a church service. And when I think about where I might be without Jesus and why he rescued me, I ask myself the question is, why did he reach out and save us? Why did he come and make the effort to draw each of us into his kingdom and to have a relationship with him? And I want to suggest to you that there's two reasons why the Lord reached out to us. And number one is just like the song that we just sang. And number one is that we would declare his praises. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and there's a study sheet that I encourage you to follow along as we kind of go through this. So you can go home and you can study it personally for yourself and you can look up the Bible verses. But Peter says that every one of us is that we were called out of his darkness. 
And, that, and so that we might declare his praises. And, and to declare his praises, isn't, it goes far beyond a moment like this when we sing these songs and these songs that have meaning to us. It is for eternity we will sing his praises. In eternity future, the angels will continue to marvel that you and I are in the presence of the Lord by his grace and by his mercy. We will be trophies of his grace forever and ever and ever as adopted sons into his kingdom. Folks, that's huge. How many of you have recently attended a, a car show recently? Can I just see your hands? A few of you have. One thing is unique about a car show, and I, and I love visiting car shows when, when I happen to you know, connect with one, is I like seeing the cars, don't you, before and after. You ever see those shows? They'll often will put up in the windshield or whatever it is, and here's what the car looked like when I found it, <laughs> and here's what it is today. And every wife there just remembers the day he found the car, <laughs> right? And the hours and hours that that car spent in the garage, and you ask the person who is owning the car, are you the one that found it? Yeah, I found it. Let me tell you. And he has this story of how he found the car. He found it in somebody's barn. He found it in somebody's field. He found it in a locker that, you know, somebody lost the keys to or whatever it is. That somehow he got the car. He paid some funds for it. And he took that car back and he poured out his love upon that car. And he cleaned it up, he took it apart, put new pieces back in it, he got all the rust off of it, put a beautiful coat of paint on it, and there you are looking at it today. And when you hear that story, isn't the first thing that you hear when you hear that story? You look at that owner and say, you did this? Yeah, I did this. His wife says, yeah, he did this. <laughs> mm -hmm. But boy, what a transformation from a car that once was to the car that is today. And when you see that, you declare that man's praises. What a good job you did. I bet that cost a lot. Yes, it did. I bet you spent a lot of time on this. Yes, it did. What a beautiful, beautiful car. And that's what the Lord has done with you and me. He's taken us wherever he has found us, out on the weed patch, out on the barn, wherever it was, and he has made us brand new. In fact, all those who are in Christ, all the old has passed away, all the new things are come, is what we have in Christ today. And so he did that to declare his praises. He also did that because once we were not a people, but now we are his people. We belong to him. It takes great delight in that. Just like that car owner said, this is my car. I bought it. I put my labor of love in it. And isn't it beautiful? That's what he has done for me. Once we were lost, once we were away from him, once we didn't belong to him, we belonged to the enemy. He, we were under his control. We were under his bondage. And he has come and he has set us free and he says, you're mine. You're all mine. And never more again will we ever be separated. In fact, in Revelation 21, the Lord's going to say, after he wipes away every tear off of our eyes, he says, now, you're with me and I'm with you. And we'll never be separated ever again. And this wonderful fellowship, this wonderful communion, we're going to enjoy for all of eternity future. So why did Jesus reach out and save us from where we were at? that we might declare his praises and that we might be his people. So then, then what changes in, what changes in our life? What, what occurs in our life when we meet Jesus? What are some of the changes that take place? One of the first things that takes place when you come to Christ is that while you were once lost and now found, he grafts you into a body. 
He joins you together and it's like he's attaching all the fingers and the toes and he's building this incredible body, piece after piece after piece after piece that exalts him and glorifies him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that we're like fingers and toes and noses and necks and ears and eyes. We're all different, but all very, very important. In fact, you take this little finger off, as gross as it sounds, you lay it aside. It's no longer attached to the body and that finger is not healthy. But when it's sewn back on and blood starts flowing again, that finger becomes healthy and useful and blesses the entire body. And that's how it is with you and me. Every one of us are significantly connected to the body of Christ. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. It's not incidental. And I love the verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 that says that he places each member in the body just as he has desired. So it's by no accident that you and I are here. He's the one that's putting us together. And we function best when we are together. He didn't intend for us to live life alone. He intended us to be together in the body of Christ. And when he shared with his disciples that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I show up. And our family has experienced that. Jesus becomes flesh and he dwells among us when we, become, when we come together. Now, I can have my own private devotions, and I need that, that private time that I have with Christ. But when two or three are gathered around me, boy, something really, something really great happens. It really happens. I mean, I see the love of Christ in a way greater than I ever could if I was just by myself. We had a person knock on our door. He says, hi, I'm here to clean your house today. And she knew that we had a whole bunch of things going on. He says, I'm just here to clean your house. We had another couple come by and sat in the dirt with us and said, we brought some food for you. We knew that it's going to be pretty hectic and it might help you not to have to fix some things. So we just brought some food from Costco, just a little go pack kind of thing. And they sat in the dirt with us and, and just grieved with us. We saw the love of Jesus. It's like Jesus showed up and sat at our table with us. We function best, folks, when we are together in Christ. He did not... He does not desire that you and I would go through life alone. It's unhealthy when we are alone. And so we are joyfully in Christ. And so then what ought to characterize our lives? What ought to characterize our lives when we are in Christ? Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12, looking at verses 9 through 21. Paul writes this letter to the church of Rome because he's concerned that this church that did not have apostolic beginnings, meaning that no disciple, Peter, James, John, none of those guys went to Rome to establish this city. This was a very unique church. Because all the other churches that you read about in the New Testament, in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of those churches were established by an apostle, not Rome. This group of people... The church started because somebody from that community had been in Jerusalem at the time that Christ was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended, and they witnessed Pentecost. So they saw those 40 days of, of, of tragedy as well as celebration, and they saw the Holy Spirit come down, and they went back to Rome, and they said, guys, you wouldn't believe what happened in Jerusalem today. I told you, you should have come with me. You just wouldn't believe it. The, these apostles that had been following Jesus, who is the resurrected Messiah, who saw him ascended, spoke in a language that I could understand, and they were just Galilean fishermen. 
And so a church was founded and established, and Paul, who was going to visit it, was concerned as he looked at this church as to what kind of church, how the church would be. And so watch as he writes now to this church as to how a gathering like this ought to be, not just individualistic, but even as a whole. So look with me in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Paul writes this, and I'm going to read it as though it would be heard and spoken to a group. And so Paul would write in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, is that together your love must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be without hypocrisy that what you see on the outside is what it is on the inside. Together you all ought to hate what is evil and you should cling to what is good. Together you should be devoted to one another. You should honor one another above yourselves. Don't seek honor for yourself, but give mutual respect to one another. And the devoted to one another and brotherly love means that you should see yourself as a family together. That you have this devotion as you would to your own brother, your own sister, your own mother, your own father. Is how you ought to be when you meet together as a group. Look at verse 12. Together you should be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Together we should be faithful in prayer together. As a body of believers, we should share with God's people who are in need together, and together we ought to be known for our hospitality. We should practice hospitality. We should bless those who persecute you, bless who do not curse. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should mourn with those who mourn. We should live in harmony with one another. We ought not to be proud, but we should be willing to associate with anybody who would come to this place, even those of low positions. And we ought not to be conceited, puffed up with pride, considering ourselves better than others. Verse 17, we should not repay anyone evil for evil. We should be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, we should live at peace with everyone. So do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is Paul's word to this church in Rome, hoping that they would be established strong in Christ, that they would understand the doctrines of Scripture, they would understand who they are in Christ, they would understand the character and nature of God, that's chapters 1 through 11, but when he gets to 12, here's how, here's how Christ ought to change our lives. So what should characterize our lives? Look at verse 9. One of the things that should characterize our lives as a body of believers is that we should have genuine love for one another. That it shouldn't be a facsimile. It shouldn't be pretentious. It ought to be the real deal that when you are greeted here and you meet folks here and we associate with one another that there is a genuineness and sincerity that what you see on the outside is what we truly are on the inside. We ought not to be a facsimile. We ought not to be a copy. It should be the real deal. The second thing that should characterize our, our lives, and look at verse 10, is that we should be wholly devoted to one another. That we should have this fond relationship with one another. And we can't have this fond relationship if we don't know each other, if we're all strangers to one another. I love the song that was popular in the sitcom that was uh, in the 70s. I think it was Cheers. It says, I want to go to a place where everyone knows my name, where everyone's problems are the same. I love that song. That song has challenged me because that ought to be characterized our church, not a bar. 
that as people come here. Now the truth of it is, as we sit in an auditorium like this, it's hard to know everyone's. I have been trying, and it's hard to know everybody's name. And we work at it, and we do the best that we can with it, but you know, in a group of 15, I could know everybody's name. And when I had a church of 150, I had a hard time knowing everyone's name. But when you get in a group, there's something's wrong if I can't know 15 names, right? <laughs> and there's a healthiness to that, to be in a place where everyone knows your name, and everyone's problems are the same. That should be the church of Christ, the body of Christ. And we should be wholly devoted to one another. We also should give preference to one another. Look at verse 10 again. We're to honor one another above ourselves. In other words, we don't seek honor for ourselves. We don't seek adulation for ourselves. But what we seek is how we can be a blessing to someone else. How we can be encouragement to someone else. How we can show respect and honor to somebody else. In fact, Paul says, have this attitude that's the same as in Christ Jesus. In fact, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility in mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. In fact, make my joy complete by having the same heart, same mind, same spirit going in the same direction as how we ought to be. And we do that by giving preference to one another. Fourthly, what should characterize our lives is that we encourage each other in the Lord. Look at the next segment, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The picture that I see here in these two verses and how we encourage one another in our passion, our zeal for Christ, it reminds me of when I used to go backpacking and I loved attempting to start a fire with one match. And I would make a little kindle, you know, some little shavings of something. You just don't stick it in a pine cone, but you take these little shavings and you put a little match in it and you just gently blow on it. And sometimes you just even put it in your hand and just... And pretty soon that little spark gets a little bigger, a little bigger to the place where you need to set it down and you can put on little bigger sticks, little bigger sticks. That's the picture here, is that we, we blow into each other's lives and we bring encouragement, we bring blessing because as we all know, there's a lot of ups and downs in life. There's a lot of things that want to squelch our fire for Christ that cause us to have burdened with disappointments and challenges. And we come alongside each other. And sometimes you just need to help pick each other up. Not shame them, but encourage them. To breathe into them that, and fan that flame of passion again that, that where the Christ is fervent and we have a strong desire for him. Fifthly is that we, we share with one another. Look at verse 13. It says that we're to share with God's people who are in need. Folks, that's easy to do when you are brothers and sisters in Christ, when you know each other. It's challenging, and I see this all the time, uh, where a stranger comes up asking for something. You don't know their background. You don't know history. But when you are together in Christ, my goodness, man, what I have is, you, is, is yours. Is there anything I can do to help you? Can we help you move? Can we help? Whatever those needs are, can we help you? And with my children, if, if they, all they need to do is just call, and we're there. And that's how we ought to be to one another. And lastly, look at verse 13. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm just picking on these few. Is that we practice hospitality. Hospitality is opening our homes to strangers. And I, and I ask, have asked this in many groups. Is when, as you look at your home, when was the last time that you had somebody over to your home that was not a close friend or a family member? When was the last time that you had somebody that was relatively a stranger to you? Somebody that you had just 
met. I'll never forget, I was 16 years old. My mom and we had, a, had family that lived over in Australia, and one of the places that we stopped was New Zealand. And we attended a church service. We had flown in on a Saturday night, and we went to a, a little Baptist church up on a hill out of Auckland, New Zealand. And I'll never forget the person turning around to us and recognizing that we were not from New Zealand and said, do you have plans for lunch? Can we have you over to our home for lunch? I'm 16 years old. I'm a jerk, right? <laughs> but I am impressed that this woman who did not know who we are invited us to their home. And we go home and there's this wonderful dinner that had been prepared with it, which we got to enjoy. We enjoyed their fellowship. I couldn't tell you their names today, but I have carried that story all my life. That loving act of kindness and hospitality I have carried with me to where I am at even today. And it shaped me to think that that little act of kindness is what Jesus was talking about. That we would see our homes as Jesus' homes. We would see our cars as his cars. And we open them up to be places of ministry. And we let God fill those things up. And we enter into his adventures. And we have seen so many wonderful, and I could tell you many, many wonderful stories of how our dinner table has always endeavored to have, even at Thanksgiving time, somebody that was outside of our family. And we embrace them into our family. Folks, it's a great adventure. I encourage you to, to open your home. And oftentimes, when we, and particularly when we, we talk about life groups, one of, the, one of the obstacles that we deal with is people say, well, my home's too small. My home's not big enough. My home's whatever. We all, we all look at our homes as being inadequate. And you, you, you wouldn't want Jesus to come into your home? <laughs> You know, and, and, and we've just made a practice. You know what? If, if you're hung up on, on our little cobwebs or whatever it is, that, that's not what it's about. And it's not about the food. It's not about the home. We just, our home is open to you. And we hope that when you step into it, you feel Christ's love. And, that, and that's an incredible things happen when we, we, we do that. We just lay it out before him and watch, and watch him work. So how did the early church do this? How did the early church do Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21? How did they do that? To find that answer, you'd look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, in fact, the first few chapters of Acts, all the chapters of Acts are written by a man named Luke. Luke did not live in Jerusalem. He was not there when Jesus ascended. He's hearing the story and he's writing eyewitnesses' accounts to his friend Theophilus. So as he asks questions... To the folks that were there, he's saying, tell me, what happened after Jesus ascended? What happened next? And somebody told him, and probably more than one person, said, Luke, you wouldn't believe what happened. Right after Jesus ascended, there were these two angels that showed up and said, hey, guys, why are you looking up? Hi, this Jesus who you see ascended is going to come back in the same way, and you need to go into Jerusalem, just like he said, and you need to wait for the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what they did. They went in and they prayed. And there was about 120 of them that were there in the upper room praying. People who had been with Jesus. The disciples are more than just 12. Jesus hung out 12 with the most closest. But there's always a pack of people that were around him who witnessed all of these things. And they chose one, Matthias, to, be, to take Judas's place. But in Acts chapter 2, the eyewitness records it. But then, Luke, you wouldn't believe what happened. After the season of prayer, on the festive of weeks when it first began... There was a mighty wind. It sounded like a tornado that was sweeping through town. 
everybody heard it. And we come running to the temple courts. And here we see these disciples. And I know they're fishermen from Galilee. You can tell by their dress. But they're all speaking these languages. Over 15 different languages are spoken. We all heard it in all of our languages. And then... 3,000 people get saved and the church goes from 120 to 3,000 and then they say, hey, let's go over to our house and eat and let's talk about what they're hearing because what they were hearing in the temple courts was the truth of God's word as Jesus had taught them in, during those 40 days about how the Old Testament shows a suffering Messiah and they would go home and they would restudy the word, restudy the apostles' teachings that could it be true and it changed Jerusalem and Luke records it all and so how did the church become the church that God was wanting to build. Two things were happening. One is the church was meeting in the temple courts, just like what we're doing here today. There would be a person who had studied under Jesus, who was revealing truth and revealing his word, and as people would listen, they'd become wholly devoted. Man, we've got to put this into practice. We've got to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And so they would go into the temple courts and then after they would hear whatever message that Peter or James or John or any of them would have about the truth of God's word, they would go back to their homes and they went from house to house all over Jerusalem. The church had no walls. It spread throughout the whole community, which is what we're doing here today. So what did they do when they met? Four things is what they did. Four things is what we do in our life groups. Four things, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We want to be students of God's word. Now the, now, the people had celebrations back then. They gathered together for birthdays. They gathered together for weddings. They gathered together for social occasions, but this was different. The person who was telling the story said, well, you wouldn't believe, Luke, you wouldn't believe what was different. They, were, they, they, would, they would meet because of Jesus. They would meet because of what the apostles were teaching. They would say, hey, let's come to my house right afterwards. You got to eat anyway? Let's sit down. Let's eat. Let's talk about Isaiah 51 or 53. Let's talk about these passages of the suffering Messiah. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, putting into practice, encouraging one another. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship of the, the communion. In fact, the word is koinonia. It talks about an intimate relationship of having one another like a father would have with a son, like a, like a brother would have with a brother or a sister or a mother with a daughter. It was that intimate devotion of fellowship with one another. Food was involved. In this word of koinonia, in fact, the word koinonia literally means communion. Not just what we did here, the bread and the cup, they're talking about the intimate relationship so that that is a part of what was going on. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. They would celebrate the Eucharist, the, 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 um, the cup and the bread. They would celebrate that together. But they'd also, thirdly, is they would break bread together. They would share meals together. There is something unique that happens over food. Have you noticed that? When, you're, when you have a relationship with someone, and just, let's just go to a dating relationship. You can see each other in school. My wife and I met in colleges. But the relationship really begins to develop when you start eating together and you start sharing together. In fact, it's very difficult to have a meal with somebody you're at odds with. Have you noticed that? When things aren't right, that Thanksgiving meal is not very comfortable, is it? <laughs> in fact, probably you wouldn't even go if you know that things aren't made right. But when things are right... Man, mommies that are here in this room, isn't it great when your family's together and they're all happy? <laughs> and you're eating together and the meals are sweet and really it's not about the food, is it? It's about the fellowship that you have together. 
And they were breaking bread together, having fellowship and communion together. And then they devoted themselves to prayer, praying for one another, encouraging one another. Because really, folks, praying together, that's where the strength comes from, is when we approach the throne together. And as I lay my needs before the Lord, my buddy, my friend comes along, or even my wife and I, as we pray together, we enter into the presence of the Lord together and we pray together. We cast all of our cares up to the Lord together and we watch God work together. And these things that I just described to you is what's going on in our community all over Modesto in the form of our small groups, our home groups, our life groups. I want to show you one of them right now. since like 1981. We meet at their home and we just walk in, we mingle, we share, we snack, we laugh, and we have our study and then, uh, we have prayer requests at the end of the session and uh, then everybody goes home. And it's, it's just a, it's a great evening uh, of sharing. And you find out that you're not, you don't, you're not the only one with problems. You know, everybody's got issues and and you hear about those, and so yours don't feel so bad. And then, you know, then you can pray for them, and they pray for you. And now we call ourselves a family. If you talk to anyone in our group, I think they would say the same thing, that we're more of a family than, than a, say, group. Sometimes you have to hang on to other people to strengthen you, and it's through Jesus that'll do that. April 13, 2018, I was diagnosed with cancer. Our life just became surreal. I had like 16 chemo treatments and 25 radiation treatments. So my journey was long. We didn't know where we were going, but I knew this journey was going to be really difficult. And I knew right then we had to get a hold of our life group. And I'm telling you, within minutes, we were getting calls and texts and prayers and the meals came in for months. It was like they never forgot us. You think you're tough until something like that happens. <clears throat> and then you get all the support from these guys calling you, you know, how you're doing, you know, what can we do, can we help you. It's amazing. I just praise the Lord for bringing all those people into our lives. And so I encourage you to, to find a group and, <clears throat> and uh, join, or start one. If you feel like you want to lead, start one. It's just a need that we don't know we need until we have it. And um, I feel that, that if you get involved, your life will change. It's, it just will never go back. Gary and Betty Harris attend our Saturday night service. I remember when they, I remember when they came to Christ and uh, Jesus changed their life in a wonderful, wonderful way. They're very special people that don't live too far from us, and we remember this, the journey that they were on. And one of the things you'll find as you get connected into a life group is that it's, um, it's hard to be selfish. If you go into a group thinking that that group exists for you, that group won't last long, and you won't last long. You go to give, and you wait for the God to give back. 
you cast your bread upon the water and you come around people, as, as Gary said, you, you know, you come in with your problems until you hear somebody else's and yours don't seem so bad. But you exist to be a blessing and encouragement to others as God uses them to be a blessing and encouragement to you. So here's the so what. Here's the conclusion. Number one, are, are you connected? It would be our hope that every one of you would be connected into a life group of some sort. That you, I like what Betty said. You don't... You don't Realize the need that you have until you have that need. <laughs> and when, when the things start falling around, all of a sudden, man, where's, I'm alone. In fact, I remember years ago, uh, we had a change in our leadership and we had a gentleman come. His son had died. Not a single one from Big Valley had reached out to him. And as I began exploring that, it, he was in a small group, was in a Sunday school class. The only person that knew him was our senior pastor. And there was no one around him to support him. He was never connected to the body of Christ. He was like a little finger that was just laying over here all by itself. And he wondered in the time of crisis, where were the brothers and sisters in Christ? He had none. There was never a point where he ever got connected to the body of Christ. Don't be unconnected. Be connected. The Lord has plans for you in somebody else's life. He also has plans in somebody else's life to be in your life. And we want to provide opportunities by which you can get connected to a group that's just right for you. Uh, the second thing, maybe some of you, as you heard even Gary and Betty's uh, testimony, is is your home available for ministry? And maybe this is the change point. You've been looking at, saying, you know, I want to open my home and see what God will do. I'd love to talk with you about it. And then the third area is, are you available to serve? And maybe you're, you're here and, and uh, we have some folks that my home's free and I'm free. And I'd be glad to help facilitate a group. I have others that said, I can facilitate, but our, our home's not available for various reasons, and we match those two things together, and it's wonderful to watch that. And in the area of facilitation, I'm, I'm not looking for a Bible teacher. I'm not looking for you to be such a student that everybody sits at your feet and just says, wow, what a lesson. Uh, I'm looking for folks that can ask some good questions and can lead the, and just lead the group from one thing into another and to keep the conversation going as you discover the Word together, and it is, it is a lot of fun. Just listening and letting Lord work within us. It's a great time. If you're not connected, boy, to this ne the next few weeks, you're going to see a few more stories just like you saw here. And we're going to be challenging you to become connected because the series that we're coming in is phenomenal. Job, the Lord is going to use Job in our life to prepare us to be a people to help folks that are in crisis. And the last kind of people we want to be are the ones who are like Eliphaz and Bilhu who try to fix it. And Job says to them, you're like a caravan that shows up into town. And when you open your tents, you have nothing to sell. Your words are so empty. And that's our tendency, is that we don't come alongside of people with compassion. And Job is very, very real. There are many people around us, even in your workplaces, who would say what Job says in chapter three, I regret the day that I was born. And the Lord is preparing us to be the people who sit in the dirt with them, to encourage them, to support them, to help them to see the glory of God. I would love for you to join us. This can be a great adventure coming up. You, don't, you won't want to miss August 24th, 25th when we start this series. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great series. Let me pray. Father, I pray and I thank you for your good work. I thank you, Lord, for the truthfulness of your word. I thank you for its power in our lives. I thank you for what you would desire to do in us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
how you would want to unleash us throughout this community such that, Lord, that, that we would be like a beautiful perfume that would emanate out of, out of North Modesto and would saturate this big valley. Lord, that this scent and the light would shine far as it shines bright here. That the potency of this fragrance of Christ, Lord, is powerful here and throughout wherever we go. Not for our exaltation, but for you. So, Lord, go with us as we go now to our homes, to our lunches, as we scatter back into the community. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to do your work for your glory. And we look for the day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.